Hey, Fidelity, can I get a second opinion on stocks in the Fidelity app? With Fidelity, it's easy to get an outside opinion from independent experts in a single score. And then? When you're ready, trade U.S. stocks and ETFs with no commissions. That's right. I am always right. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity account. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Thanks, guys. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Karen Feinerman. Coming up on Fast, the airline stocks grounded after Warren Buffett throws in the towel on the group. So should you follow Buffett's lead? We'll debate that. Plus, the fourth may not be with Disney today, the big downgrade that sent shares onto a not-so-magical Monday. And we've got a heaping helping of food stocks by Starbucks and Shake Shack on the move, both of them in the after-hour session. We start off with a big about-face on Wall Street. Stocks are racing. Big losses to finish the day in the green. The move higher comes despite a host of developing threats out there. For one, no visibility. A quarter of companies that have reported so far in the S&P 500 have yanked guidance. China, threats of new terrorists and retaliation for its role in the pandemic. And the virus death toll, new reports that we could see 3,000 deaths a day in the United States this as states begin to reopen. So is the action we saw today actually a sign that the market may be climbing a wall of worry? Guy. Hi, Mel. Hi, Guy. It's clearly climbing something, you know, and, and Tim's been on this theme, so Kudos to him. And I got to tell you something. I was impressed today. The price action today was, you know, very interesting. So kudos to the market and people that still believe in it. Out of the three things you mentioned, and loss of life obviously is the most concerning, but in terms of the market, you know, this potential retaliation against the Chinese that Steve Mnuchin spoke about today and saying the Chinese were still going to honor their trade agreement. You know, I, I personally don't think the market's paying enough attention to this. I happen to think this rhetoric is only going to get louder and it in no way is market positive. So although today was very impressive and energy really. I think we're having some problems with guys uh, shop. We'll go to Tim now uh, in terms of your thoughts. I mean, he was the guy was saying <laughs> that tariffs could be the biggest potential worry. Energy. We're, we're still supposedly in the midst of a trade war. We only had phase one go into effect in February, and we've still got other phases to go, and yet we're talking about a ramp in tariffs at this point. Right, and, and, and think about the, the jawboning that the market has gotten from the Fed. We've talked about it on the show recently, what the Fed has actually done versus what they said they could do. Um, and so when you come out there and start talking about levying tariffs and going back to you know, trade war, even if it's just rhetoric, um, that's not what they want to do right now. They're, they're trying to boost morale. They're trying to ultimately boost confidence in markets, but also in the global economy. So this is a little puzzling, um, whether you believe it, it has merit and base in, in you know, purpose and efficacy. Um, uh, Guy was mentioning energy before we lost him. And I, and I think that's something that at least is encouraging. So you're, you're seeing some of the technical elements of the, of the market. We obviously know that the supply-demand fundamentals aren't great. We know what's going to happen to demand, but we've also had to get some sense of where uh, credit issues for the energy space are systemic. And, you know, we still don't know that. 
but but oil's up 48 percent in four days. Um, if you look at other constructive parts of where small caps and retail are trading, um, they actually were part of that resilient turnaround today. Um, but yet, look, we we had terrible data out of out of Asia. And those were PMIs from countries that actually gave us some sense of confidence. The earlier month, Taiwan especially went from a 50.2 down to down to 41 and change on their PMI. So uh, just because Asia's two or three months ahead of us doesn't mean that it gets better for them necessarily. And I think that's part of what we're starting to worry about. Time and temperature of the markets for you, Dan. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, what Tim had to say about a lot of these different moving parts for just risk assets globally is really important. It's obviously been a very volatile period over the last two and a half months or so. I just say about the U.S. stock market pretty interestingly, towards the end of March when it was down between 30 and 35 percent in a little more than a month, I think we all agreed that the selling became very indiscriminate, especially given what we didn't know about the health and the economic crisis. And just a week or so ago, prior to the really the bulk of S&P earnings here, I think a lot of us felt like things were getting a little too much uh, overdone to the upside, up about 32, 33 percent from the lows. So here we are right now. We're struggling with this 2800 level in the S&P 500, which is nearly the midpoint of that two and a half month range from 3400 on the upside to 2200 on the downside. And I think that makes sense. You used the term visibility or lack thereof, Mel, just before. That's where we are. We have to kind of digest what corporate earnings are going to look like. What are the next shoes to drop for the economy? And we just don't know right now. So the idea that the market takes a bit of a breather here and digests some of the commentary from the major companies, I think, makes total, total sense. That being said, I think the market is totally pricing in a lot of really rosy scenarios with the S&P 500 only down 12% on the year, given what we know, despite all the stimulus. So to me, I still expect a retest at least somewhere, you know, 10, 15% lower than current levels here. Dan uh, had mentioned the next shoe to drop. Karen, is there an assumption that there is a next shoe to drop? I think there's a next shoe to drop in that I think that maybe the reopening doesn't happen as smoothly as smoothly as we like and that the rebound for so many companies isn't anywhere near what we hoped it would be. So I kind of agree with Dan. I think the market has really come way too far too fast. Looking through to the other side, we don't really know how far away the other side is. The one thing that is really important, though, is that the credit markets are wide open. So companies that three weeks ago or four weeks ago really were thinking very hard about their balance sheets, how are they going to survive, they're able to do deals now. I mean, this is some of the most active capital markets activity we've ever seen. So that's helpful. So, and the Fed has obviously said we will do whatever it takes. That's helpful. But I, I really don't. It feels like people think the, the Fed has given us an at the money put. And I really sort of don't believe that. I mean, I'm always looking for things to buy. And right now I find very little things to buy. It's amazing to me that so three, four weeks ago there was plenty to buy. So I, I think this bounce back is really, really too far. And I think it's, it's discounting a very good treatment, a vaccine next year, and a robust recovery in pretty short order. The, the credit marks, markets being open, though, Guy, I mean, that, that's really a lifeline for a lot of companies. That really extends the amount of pain companies can endure. We're talking about companies ranging from Ford to Avis, troubled company in a troubled sector. 
to Apple, which doesn't need the money, but is going to raise the money anyway. I mean, we've got companies out there just raising money left and right with the Fed's implicit backstop to all of this. Which, which is definitely market bullish, but it gets you down the rabbit hole of, you know, should we be doing it in the first place or should we be allowing uh, the phrase I use, corporate Darwinism, to take over? And, you know, I clearly favor that. It's not pleasant, but I think it's really vital and important and necessary. But to sort of echo the things Karen is saying, you know, I find myself, uh, you know, I think Tim's on one end of the spectrum and he's looking really smart about that now. I think Dan's on the other. I find myself closer to Dan at this point than Tim for a myriad of reasons. And I was mentioning this U.S.-China rhetoric that I think is going to continue to escalate. And I don't think in any way whatsoever uh, that's bullish or the market's giving it the consideration that it needs to. So, you know, here we are at 2,800. Uh, I think it's a level where, you know, you look at some of these stocks and you say maybe it's time to take some money off the table. All right. Well, big cap tech helped prop the markets up today. Our next guest says don't chase this mini MAGA rally, though. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, always great to speak with you. Great to be here. Thanks, Mel. You're, you're not just talking about technology. You're saying overall... Don't buy anything right now. Well, Why not? So I think we've got to be careful about just making it a big cap tech thing. I, I, at twenty nine fifty, I'm certainly not chasing. I think what's interesting is the Fed put, if you had a strike price, Mel, it'd be right here. Because this is, the it, on April 9th, the game-changing decision that the Fed made was to announce a $2 trillion stimulus package that could buy various areas of high-yield and municipal debt. So that made it going all the way back to the low unlikely, because you do have a Fed put, and it's right at this area. So this is a perfect place to have a real bull bear epic. Uh, the last time I was on, when, on your first day back, it was an epic battle, a tug of war between monetary stimulus and negative economic outcome. And, and what a place to rage it is right here. So what are you saying investors should do at this point, Tony? Nothing. So, so, as you know, Mel, we, we lowered our rating in the market in January, and to get us more offensive, to, to kind of mirror what a lot of the other um, panelists have said, um, you need to see more than these mega cap stocks rallying. So the S&P 500 is at 28, you know, 25, or wherever close today, right? It's all up on these mega cap names that now account for about 20% of the index. And I don't know if that's good or bad. It just is what it is. If you look underneath it, what would get me more offensive, where I'm going to say, okay, let's go in, you would want to see the U.S. Treasury market have a pretty significant uptick in yield, suggesting that it's betting on economic recovery. It's what happens each time, as we talked about last time, you're coming out of a recession, you get a sharp steepening of the yield curve. And if you couple that with relative outperformance of the offensive sectors, I think that that is where you want to start to attack. The, the problem is, let's say, let's say I don't know, five, ten percent ago, I said, okay, everybody all in. I would have been wrong on my sector bets because it's been these mega cap stocks versus the underlying sustainable economic outlook groups. Hey, hey so Tony, it's Dan. How are you, bud? Good, Dan. So, so talking. About- Talking about these MAGA stocks, okay, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon, all of them reported, you know, really decent enough earnings. I know Amazon had some issues, but that really is a function of how much the stock had rallied. Do you think there's risk 
if we do take a leg lower in the broad market, that those names lead to the downside and present more of a problem than if we were to actually continue back towards 3,000, the help that they might give to the upside. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do they have the potential to snowball because of that concentration? Well, I got to tell you, at, at 2,300, with the, the most historic oversold condition in, in the market's history, one of them, yeah, you got to get, you got to buy for a relief rally, right? So now, what I could see happening after we've turned been turned back at 2950, where uh, frankly I felt like an idiot because I didn't get it, you know, I didn't I didn't think it'd go up that much. So back here at 2800, with line in the sand at the Fed at the Fed announcement area, Dan, I could envision a situation where the market. The S&P 500 index itself doesn't do a whole heck of a lot, but you start to see the rotation underneath. To Karen's point, there are, a lot of the broad market hasn't been lifted. Financials have been a disaster. Industrials have underperformed. And even with today's strength, and today was a good day, except financials and industrials, the two offensive sectors that typically lead out of a real economically driven bear market low, underperformed. You had a nice, you know, stabilization in the treasury market, I want to see those groups catch a real bid, more than a one- or two-day bid, pick up their relative performance, and then I think we can get offensive. I'm looking to get offensive, not defense, but you you need signs first. Tony, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Mel. Have a great day. You too. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord. Karen, what do you make of the underperformance that we've seen in financials and industrials? Uh, well, I'm kind of surprised with the underperformance of financials mainly. I can, I can accept that maybe this is where they should be or that they should be lower. What I can't understand is how is the broad market here with, it, with financials there? That is a big disconnect to me. Either the economy is going to be much better than the banks are telling you or the banks are telling you the economy is going to be much weaker. Those two things I really think need to diverge. So I'm long financials. Um, You know, I think we're in for some big provisions coming up this quarter and maybe next quarter as well, on top of the one they just reported. But I think they're going to make it through. And so it's surprising to me that, and they are levered, so surprising to me how big this underperformance is. All right, we got some breaking news on restaurant brands. Let's get to Dom Truth for the latest. Dom. All right, so restaurant brands, you'll better know this is the parent company of Burger King, Tim Hortons, Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. It's up 5% in the aftermarket session, roughly 2 million shares of aftermarket volume. And this is on headlines actually coming out because Pershing Square... Uh, Pershing Square's Bill Ackman has now took it, has taken his stake above a threshold amount to around 9.6% of total QSR or Restaurant Brands International stock. Y- you may recall that Bill Ackman has been an owner of this stock for the past eight years. He actually made some comments to our very own Scott Wapner just a few moments ago saying that this is in no way an activist position and that they fully support management and the board at Restaurant Brands International, but they intend to kind of go into discussions to see if they can find some way to unlock shareholder value. Again, not an activist position, but the reason why, Melissa, guys, they made this filing is because they crossed a threshold amount from a regulatory perspective. That means they have to disclose their stake. That's the reason why. But it's now roughly about a nine and a half percent stake in Restaurant Brands International, guys. Back over to you, Melissa. All right, Dom. Thank you, Dom Chu. Uh, Guy Dom, I'll go to you owner of Popeyes, et cetera. I mean, QSR, I chase, relatively speaking, no, I love, let, it, it has you, been you, less hit. 
Yeah, and but but not a cheap stock, and and less cheap now with this move to the upside. Um, you know, you know, I love Popeyes. We did that taste test when we were all together months and months ago. But I don't, I don't think you follow. In my opinion, you don't follow Mr. Ackman in at these levels. To Dom's point, uh, the disclosure needed to be put out there. But to chase it up now, probably ten percent in the aftermarket. I think you're you're trading wrong. I'd actually use this as an opportunity to trim if I own the stock. Tim. Well, it, it, Bill Ackman's been pretty decent in the fast, casual, and, and quick-serve space. So think about Chipotle. Mm-hmm. Think about some other things he's been a part of recently where I think he, he, he certainly saw um, not only a trading opportunity but a fundamental bottom-up. I, I, I would agree. I don't think I chase a filing. Um, but uh, And again, remember, Bill Ackman was someone that went pretty aggressive uh, near the lows of the market with, with just putting cash back into the equity market on, a, uh, on an allocation basis. I think you know, we're going to talk about McDonald's later in the show. We're going to talk about Shake Shack. I don't think it's a great environment um, for, for these quick serve fast food locations. Having said that, um, I, I do think there are franchises that are taking market share relative to their peers. Yep, we're going to talk about food next, actually. More food news coming up. But first up, a Java Jolt with Starbucks just said the reopening that has shares shooting higher in the after-hour session later. Is this McDonald's of the future? The big test underway in the Netherlands that could show fast food's new normal. Stay with us. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. News just crossing on Hertz. Let's get straight to Phil Abo in Chicago for the details. Phil. Melissa, the stock is plunging right now on reports from the Dow Jones citing sources that Hertz is hiring restructuring lawyers and, bank- and bankers preparing for a bankruptcy filing. That's why when you take a look at shares of Hertz, again, it's under pressure on this report uh, from Dow Jones that they are hiring restructuring uh, lawyers at uh, Hertz in a preparation for a possible bankruptcy filing. You know, they just missed a lease payment or there were reports of them missing a lease payment uh, at the end of last week. That is really when you started to see the pressure mount on this stock. But, of course, we know what's been going on with all of the rental car companies and the financial pressure that they're facing, especially given the fact that we've seen a massive drop in travel around the country. Melissa, back to you. What is the ripple effect, if any, Phil, on the auto industry if Hertz is sort of taken out as a player, uh, as, a, as a buyer, fleets of vehicles? Well, I'm not sure they'd be taken out as, as a buyer. I okay. think more than anything, it's, it's that they'd restructure their debts. And especially when you look at their fleet portfolio, that would have some implications in terms of the pricing, the residual values on those vehicles. But in terms of demand, look, I think in talking with executives in the auto industry, almost all of them say the same thing. They're not expecting much demand for the remainder of this year. They realize what's going on in terms of the rental car companies. All right. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in Chicago. Uh, Dan Nathan, it's no surprise. Phil had said they missed the lease payment, so the clock was perceived as, as ticking since that point in time. And, of course, it's being hit. No, no travel to airports means no rental cars from there. Yeah. 
Yeah, what's sad, Mel, is that obviously Hertz, uh, Avis, these are great American companies. They employ between 70,000 people. Between the two of them, that doesn't mean that those employees are all going away. They're going to restructure their debt. The, the equity in these two companies is a zero, right? But, you know, I guess the main takeaway here is that pre-pandemic, these companies were already in massive decline, and this was just an accelerant for them. And so I'm not sure it gets much better for them on the way out, no matter how they restructure their debt. That's fundamentally these businesses have changed and it's going to be a very, very tough environment just for the next few years right now, even if they were not to change too much from here. Saying that these uh, companies basically are zero, Karen, is pretty dramatic. Would you agree with that? Well, I think in Hertz's case, I think that's probably true. I just look quickly at some of their debt that's due in 2022. It was, it was 100 cents on the dollar at the end of February. It's now... Uh, like 18 cents on the dollar. Hmm. So that's telling you that the equity, if that's where the debt is trading at 18 cents on the dollar, the equity has to be something that rounds to zero. For Avis, you know, and I think when I heard that story about Hertz, I think, all right, is that a positive for Avis or is it a negative that Hertz would be able to restructure in bankruptcy and run more efficiently with less debt? Or do they just pull back from the market that might be better for Avis. I don't know. It's a scary space to be in, though. I, uh, thankfully, I'm just a voyeur. Okay. We've got an earnings alert meantime for you on Shake Shack. Kate Rogers joins us with the details. Kate. Hi, Melissa. A mixed first quarter for Shake Shack with a beat on EPS, but a miss on revenues. As the company had warned in its preliminary earnings report in April, same shack sales, as they call it, fell by 12.8% for the quarter. Like many restaurants, the end of March really hit the company hard, with same store sales falling by 29% due to shutdowns seen across the country. A few bright spots, though, in this earnings report. CEO Randy Garuti noted the company is beginning to hire back some of the employees that it's furloughed. It said since the low point of the quarter, Shake Shack is seeing steady increases in domestic sales thanks to growth in digital channels and expansion of its integrated delivery partnerships. And its licensed business is starting to experience small signs of recovery in Korea, Hong Kong and mainland China in a limited capacity. Shake Shack also adding that COVID-19 will add additional costs as it invests in supplies to keep its guests and safe, uh, staff rather safe, excuse me. And the future impact of the pandemic can't be reasonably measured at this time. And then on to Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson just out with a letter to the company's employees as it begins to slowly start to reopen some of its stores across the United States in modified formats beginning today. Johnson says that by the end of this week, 85 percent of company operated stores will be reopened across the United States. They are expecting more than 90 percent of stores to be open by early June under modified operations and hours. Very important point there. Uh, Johnson adds the foundation of our approach comes from what we've learned in China, where more than 90 98% of our stores are now open and we are operating under revised protocols. We've adapted these protocols for the U.S. and our goal is to exceed the standards outlined by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for a safe experience, including heightened emphasis on cleaning and sanitizing protocols in our stores. So Starbucks beginning to get back to normal starting today. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Kate. Thank you, Kate Rogers. Tim Seymour, in your mind, does it make sense for Starbucks to reopen that many stores across the United States if a large swath of the country are still sheltering in place. 
You know, I, I, I'm going to let Starbucks make that decision. They, I think they've been a, a socially responsible uh, oh, corporate Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt I him. I, I don't, I don't mean make- this to be a, an indictment of Starbucks and their decision as to whether or not it, they're spreading COVID by reopening, but simply as an investor, from an investor standpoint, does that make operational efficiency sense to you? Well, again, I think they will probably have adjusted staffing. Um, if you think about what's gone on in China since they, they went to this 98% stores that are reopened, their sales are down 35%. And that's, you know, we got a little excited out of the gates, um, and now we've had a full month of that, and they're down 35%. Um, U.S. is still 66% of operating, uh, operating income as of at least 2019. And so, you know, it's, we want to see those stores open. We want to see people get comfortable with the move back. Um, again, I, I'll leave it to them to decide how they're going to staff, you're right. Um, At at some point, there may be a bigger burn to having more stores open if people aren't fully back in certain parts of the country. But I I think that's what they have to do. And and, and ultimately, again, uh, Kevin Johnson as an operator has always impressed me Mm -hmm. understanding really how to count paperclips. And and ultimately, that's what that comes down to. And I think he'll do it. Uh, Guy, I'll go to you probably on Shaq since you worked there for some period of time uh, way back when. Hi, it's Karen. (laughs) Guy? Oh, I'm sorry. I heard Karen saying, I apologize, Mel. Yes, I did work at the Shake Shack, and I'm very proud of my time at Shake Shack. But how do you trade the stock? Well, if you go back and look, I think it was February 20th. No, it topped out around 78. Obviously, things, things went to the downside pretty quickly. You have a major double bottom at 30. But, you know, this is a 50% retracement. I think you take profits here at 54 and live to fight another day, Mel. All right, within fast food. We asked you this question. Could this be the McDonald's of the future? Take a look at some of these images. This is a prototype of McDonald's in the Netherlands, specifically in the city of Arnhem. The restaurant set up a trial design that promotes social distancing. So you got big yellow dots on the ground to separate customers, hand sanitizers at the entrance. You take a number, you go in. There's a huge plastic screen between customers and the person taking your order. Um, and so you, you think about this and and if we are going to continue living with this pandemic amidst uh, us, Dan, is this the kind of McDonald's that you want to go to? And are we ever going to get back up to the capacity that McDonald's once had if these sorts of measures are in place? Yeah, Mel, I think that is 100% the right question. We know that these sorts of brands don't have pent-up demand. It's whether consumers get back to some of their old habits. So then the question becomes, are these new measures um, impediments to wanting to go have that experience when it looks so different than the one before? And I just, I'm not so certain about that. If McDonald's from here on out is going to be about drive-throughs and takeout, then fine. Consumers will be, become very used to that. But with Starbucks, for instance, it really is about lying around there and getting the most out of your $5 latte with free Wi-Fi over 35 minutes or something like that. That experience has changed and will be changed for the next couple of years. So, um, you know, we just don't know right now. But what we do know is all the costs associated with transforming your business for this post-pandemic economy are going to be grave. There are going to be far fewer consumers um, that are employed during that period when you're expecting an uptick in business. Um, And a lot of those consumers used to be their employees. So to me, I think it's going to be a tremendously difficult period, just like uh, Guy said about QSR um, for these guys, even though that they are at a 
price point that makes sense for a recessionary environment, I think a lot has, the game has changed, unfortunately. All right, coming up, one analyst doing a sharp U-turn on shares of Disney. We'll find out what made him so bearish on the stock in just a few days. And later, could troubles in the meat supply chain mean a big beat for Beyond Meat? We'll break down the numbers. Fast Money's back in two. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Breaking news on Walgreens. Dom Chu's got the story. Dom. Right, so, Melissa, we got Walgreens shares up about two and a quarter percent in the aftermarket session, about 90,000 shares of volume. And this is driven by a Reuters story saying that Amerisource Bergen, which is one of the biggest healthcare and pharmaceutical distribution companies in America, has now approached Walgreens Boots Alliance to possibly look into buying its wholesale pharmaceuticals business and that Walgreens or Amerisource Bergen may be willing to pay about $6 billion for that particular business at Walgreens. This is, of course, according to sources familiar with the matter. Those particular headlines are driving those shares higher. Amerisource Bergen right now, uh, just for context here, not moving after market, but still an interesting story in the healthcare business if a deal were to come to fruition. But that's what's driving those shares of Walgreens Boots Alliance in the after hours. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank you, Dom Chu. Switching gears here. May the fourth be with you. That Star Wars reference not inspiring much magic for Disney investors today. The stock tumbling following a downgrade at Moffat Nathan. The firm saying the coronavirus will be incredibly harmful to Disney's near and midterm financials and that a slew of negative revisions are on the way as estimates catch up to the, quote, grim reality of Disney's position. So it would not seem the force is with Disney right now, Karen. And what's so interesting is that Moffat Nathanson was just out on April 26 with a note reiterating its buy rating on Disney, saying that all these themes that were experiencing during the pandemic in terms of streaming and people being at home and binging, those are accelerants, um, that the recession is an accelerant to these trends that were already in place. Right. But then there's the rest of their businesses, which um, it was a really interesting piece. You know, they talked about theme parks, and obviously that's not a great place to be right now. They, they put in a July 1st opening for the theme parks, but I think even they thought that's not going to happen in any meaningful way. 
And then a lot about ESPN um, and, you know, what's, how valuable is that going to be? Uh, the movie business. I mean, there's a lot of things that are really, uh, and forget also the cruise business, but that's just a small part. But the hotel business as well. I think that they're in almost every area you don't want to be right now, with the exception, I guess, of being an airline. But uh, it's obviously it's a great franchise. They, it's not a it's not a you know run and sell it. I think one twelve I think was their target, which was down um, somewhat. I think if you you are really patient, they're talking about the recovery being pushed out a year or two years. The twenty one really won't have them back to where they were. Maybe twenty two. Uh, and I don't even know if we'll get to that much volume then. But if you think we will by then, if you think the theme parks people will go to, there's a vaccine, everybody feels good, mm-hmm. then, then I think that 22 will be back to very good earnings. If you're really patient, right. then you can buy it here. Around 100, I think, is an okay place to buy I mean, cord cutting was already a trend that was in place prior to the recession that we're facing right now. And so if we are to believe that that a recession isn't accelerant to already, you know, existing trends, then that will be accelerated. They, they point out that ESPN has a high fixed cost base. And in terms of social distancing, theme parks, I mean, Guy, I don't know when the last time you were at a Disney theme park, but it was mobbed. And can you imagine if they had to operate under the assumption where people had to stand online six feet apart in order to get onto, oh, your favorite ride, the Hall of Presidents, ride in quotes. I don't know. I don't know if people will go. You know, if you had to if you think about this, so if each person online from Mr. Toad's Wild Ride had to stand six feet apart, I mean, the end of the line would be in Tampa. That's problematic because last I look, Disney was in Kissimmee, number one. Number two, I'm not racing back to get on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride or Hall of Presidents. Neither am I racing back to get in the ball pit at some of these McDonald's. And I think I'm not the only one. So. You know, I, I understand they've lowered their price target from 120 to 112. I still think they're probably a little bit high. I think you're going to have an opportunity to buy this stock in the low 90s, and that's why I would re-enter a long position, Melms. All right, let's get the uh, options action on Disney because the company reports first quarter earnings after the bell tomorrow. Options traders are betting the stock could be in for a sharp drop on the results. Mike's got the action. Mike. This isn't a name that has typically moved very much on earnings. It's averaged a move of only about 1.5% over the past eight quarters. But the options market is expecting considerably more volatility out of it when they report tomorrow. Right now, it's implying a move of over 7% by the end of the week and puts out traded calls by about 1.6 to 1. And the most active short-dated puts that we're trading that I was looking at were the weekly expiring this coming Friday 100-strike puts. And those were trading for about $3. So buyers of those puts obviously are pessimistic going into earnings and betting that the stock could fall below that $100 strike price by at least the $3 they paid. That would be below $97 by the end of the week. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Ho. Uh, For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, airline stocks hitting some major headwinds today after Warren Buffett says he is throwing in the towel on the entire group. We'll find out what is next for this struggling sector. And later, a big bank smackdown, a big sell call in Wells Fargo that got our attention today. We got the details and come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Airline stocks tumbling today after Berkshire Hathaway's Warren Buffett said he sold his entire stake in the four largest U.S. carriers, Buffett cashing out of his positions in American, Delta, Southwest and United. The move comes as the coronavirus outbreak continues to devastate the travel industry. Uh, So, Dan, what's your take on this move? 
Yeah, this is a tough one. You know, we've been talking about it on the um, uh, on the show for the last couple of weeks. Just what is the state of the airline industry? And the truth is, we don't know. And I think it's really important to, to just follow the lead of a guy like Buffett, who literally has the deepest pockets in America and has a time horizon longer than anybody who watches this show. So I just don't know how you could get in there and buy them. I suspect there's going to be more bailouts. There's going to be more dilutive raises, all that sort of stuff. So to me, I'm just a, it's a no touch for me right here. Tim. Well, he, he, he bought early, right? He, he bought a million shares of Delta at 46 on February 27th and, and now has kicked those out. And, and so, um, look, we, we have expected Warren Buffett to be uh, an investor of enormous patience and, and, and opportunism in the past. And so why isn't he here? Does that mean airlines are a no touch? You know, very possibly, as Dan's pointed out, as Karen's pointed out, um, and, I, and I'll extend that and just say, you know, the CARES Act requires that a lot of these carriers keep the, you know, every city open till at least the end of September at an amazing cost burden. Um, and I know there's been a lot of appeals to this, and some of the smaller ones uh, may get some, some relief. I think Southwest may get some relief. But but, you know, ultimately, United last, uh, you know, last week just gave you numbers and, and they told you nothing is, is going to be held back in terms of uh, what they have to do to cut their business down. And, and no matter what, this is what I'll say for airline investors, you're coming back with a smaller market size, um, no matter what happens and, and you know, leaving aside cost base and whatnot. So um, I think there's been an enormous mark to market. Um, but, you know, even that Disney note by Moffat Nathanson shows that was about longer impact for a company they follow. That's really the story here, too. And if you believe this is a medium to longer term impact for airlines, uh, I don't know why you have to get in there now, even though I remain long a couple residual positions. Karen, in the past, you've seen value in the airlines. You've been in the airlines. Um, why isn't there value in your view anymore? I mean, for a lot of the reasons Tim's talking about, just the, you know, the, the operating, the structure of running an airline, right? It's so capital intensive, the fixed costs are very high, and they're not going to be able to get out of that. And then at the same time, you have a, no clarity whatsoever on when demand will return. I believe it will return one day. I really do. But until then, their burn is so high that I, I don't feel a need to jump in at all. Even for a trade, Guy Adami, these are a no-touch? <laughs> I, we've said that for a while. And, you know, if you look, they, although they have bounced off those lows we made, all these airlines, they really haven't bounced anywhere nearly commensurate with the broader market. So I, I say no. And if you want, you know, our show's on at 5 o'clock Eastern time, which is typically a little bit before dinner time. Go back and watch that video you made us sit through about the, the aerosol spray <laughs> on a plane. I mean, that was not pleasant, Mel, and I blame you 100%. And my sense is, without even watching it, they're going to be playing it on a loop at some point. So I say you will wait and see what happens. I still think there's another leg lower in the airlines, and I've, I think I've said that for a while. I mean, that was more of a PSA from my standpoint, playing that video, so people understand the value of wearing masks, because a mask can actually contain a lot of those little purple dots, which are germs, from flying all over the airplane. But that's an aside. Coming up, shares of Wells Fargo taken to the woodshed this year, and one Wall Street firm says the pain isn't over yet. We'll have more on that call next. And do not miss our special coverage of markets and turmoil. That is coming up tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on CNBC. Fast will be right back.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Wells Fargo dropping today after UBS slapped a sell rating on the stock. Analysts raising concerns with revenue and loan losses due to the coronavirus, saying Wells Fargo may not make enough money to protect itself against those headwinds. UBS dropping its price target on the stock to 19 bucks a share. Guy, sell is pretty rare on Wall Street. Very rare on Wall Street. You know, it's, I always found it fascinating when banks downgrade other banks. Right? It's it's. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me. It's sort of like the Yankees saying the Red Sox are a miserable team, but it is what it is. In terms of the stock, all you have to do is look. I mean, it's, it traded the, the recent low is 25 and a dime. It's trading 27 and change. I mean, this bank has not bounced at all on what's been a remarkable tape. I understand banks have underperformed, but Wells just not getting it done. So, I, you know, Wells, a lot of the problems at Wells are very Wells-specific, and they brought them on themselves, and then you add this on top of it. So I happen to agree with that downgrade, so yes. Yeah, on that note, specific to Wells, UBS points out that it's got lower loan loss reserves compared to peers, Tim, and that's obviously a huge concern going into a recession or a recessionary environment. Banks have been really aggressive. We heard that in earnings uh, two weeks ago with the loan loss provisions that, that, that rival 2008-2009. So UBS uh, is pointing out that Wells hasn't done that. Um, they've also pointed out that their cost structure and optimization right now is totally hamstrung by the fact that they haven't really met a lot of their regulatory hurdles. Um, so it, it's, it's a money center bank with less flexibility at a very difficult time than the other money center banks um, without the loan loss provision. So uh, at the risk of piling on, um, certainly on a relative value play. Why, why wouldn't you be short wells against owning the money center bank of, of your relative choice? Yeah, and on that note, I go to Karen, right? Because you, you own some. Um, I don't own, I own banks. I don't own wells. But one interesting thing about that note, it looked like Citibank was really probably his favorite. He has a $64 target on Citibank and the stock's, I don't know, 45 uh, that's pretty big upside. Really, it's on valuation that the price to book, tangible book, is 0.68, which is extremely low. And they, he feels that they're in a good position to weather the storm. I, I kind of agree with that. Um, to Tim's point, the money center bank of my first choice is J.P. Morgan, just because it's the highest quality. <laughs> it's also the most expensive to tangible book, but it's the highest quality. And I got no position in Wells. Why bargain hunt when the, when the best of breed is a bargain? If all you guys are sitting uh, around me, I'm sure we'd make fun of Karen and her crush uh, on Jamie Dimon. But you're not, so we'll let that go. Dan, Nathan, <laughs> where do you stand on the banks? <laughs> yeah, I think the XLF is a sale. And, you know, what? it's really interesting is that it's not just the banks. The, the primary holding uh, or the largest holding is Berkshire Hathaway. So to me, um, if this analyst thinks that Wells Fargo, which is worst of breed right now, could go down 25, 30%, the XLF has probably got another 20% downside to those 2016 lows. So to me, I think Karen said something really interesting before about the underperformance of the banks. I think they tell you that the recession is going to be deeper and longer than the S&P 500 is telling you that, and there are lower lows in the bank stocks. All right. Coming up, as the country braces for a potential food shortage, shares of Beyond Meat are in rally mode. Should you sink your teeth into this trade? We'll debate that next. Plus, be sure to catch the CEO of Salesforce on Mad Money tonight. He's got a new set of tools to get people back to work. Much more Fast Money in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Tyson Foods getting grilled today after a big earnings miss. The company blaming major production disruptions due to the coronavirus. Tyson also warning of possible food shortages because of an unprecedented shift in demand from restaurants to the grocery store. Check out shares of plant-based Beyond Meat. They headed higher today, closing up about 4%. Beyond Meat reports tomorrow after the bell. So is Beyond actually poised to be the big winner out of all this? Let's bring in Bernstein analyst Alexia Howard for more on that. Alexia, great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Happy to be here. Can we make that assumption that a shortage or uh, pork and beef and, and protein in general and potentially higher prices for the consumer is a benefit for Beyond? I think that's right. That uh, We've certainly seen a lot of meat processing plant closures, as you rightly pointed out, for Tyson and the other large meat companies. Uh, that is likely to feed into a supply shortage over the next few weeks. Uh, and yes, the plant-based uh, um, options are likely to become a bit more appetizing as a result of that. It might be a, a bit of a push-pull, though, because Beyond is also losing a lot of restaurant business, the commercial side of the business, as it's gaining on the retail side. So can you walk us through how much is actually being offset by the grocery side of the business? Well, we saw the grocery side uh, of the business grow by over 200% in the last four weeks in measured channels. Um, that is going to be touch and go, as you say, a push-pull kind of situation because uh, Beyond Meat has about 50% of its sales in the uh, food service side of the business. And as we know, a lot of restaurants and schools and so on are closed. Fortunately, the, um, the quick service restaurants that are the biggest part of their food service business haven't been uh, hit quite as badly as, as many other parts of food service because of the drive-through options. Um, so uh, if we're seeing a 25 30% decline in their food service sales, maybe it's a little more than that with the school side of things. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how much that over 200% growth in retail uh, is going to help them out. But remember, this is a company that has been growing at an astronomical treble-digit rate uh, for a couple of years now, and so investor expectations are um, commensurately high. Uh, we're forecasting about 125% uh, sales growth year-on-year this quarter, but I think all eyes are going to be on what they say about the next quarter that they're going to report and how hard the, uh, the food service side of things is being hit right now. And, and just quickly, Alexia, your guess is that they suspend guidance? Uh, I, most of these companies, uh, particularly the ones that are towards the beginning of their fiscal years, mm-hmm. uh, are withdrawing guidance at this point. And okay. I, give it, I think given the complete uncertainty at this point, it wouldn't be at all surprising uh, if they withdraw that tomorrow. We'll see. All right. Alexia, thank you. Alexia Howard of Bernstein. Tim, where do you fall on Beyond Meat as a trade as opposed to a dinner well, option? You know, another, another, yeah, <laughs> I, I'll, I, I don't chase the stock. I never have. Um, and I am concerned about the competitive landscape. But as it relates to restaurant partners and whatnot, I think that's important. Starbucks just has added them in China. And, and certainly the global footprint uh, is also a big part of why analysts had gotten bullish on the name. I just think that the the competitive landscape in the medium term, uh, which is how we seem to be looking at stocks these days, is is incredible. Um, And so there are headwinds and there are tailwinds here. And I think the headwinds are going to outweigh the tailwinds. If the price of pork guy or beef goes up to a price where it is competitive with Beyond Meat because they are priced at at a premium or have been traditionally for the existence of this alt meat category, would that make you more likely to buy? Because I think that's that's part of the consumer calculus out there. 
Buy the product or buy the stock? I, the product, I ain't buying, number one. The stock, though, I think you actually can buy. You know, early in April, you know, I thought there was a chance that we'd take out the, all, the recent high of 126, and for a while it looked really smart, but as typical, that was short-lived. Uh, but I do think you could see a short-covering rally post-earnings tomorrow. So I think Beyond Meat sets up pretty well here into earnings. So don't like it, the product. Do like the stock. All right. Up next, final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Intel, I think you can be in at least this mega cap tech name. We talked about MAGA, but I think they're in the right parts of data center uh, and semiconductors. It's defensive here. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, I'm always looking for things to buy today. I found only one, which was Alibaba. It's only up from its low, about 8%. Um, and, you know, they're spending tons of money on cloud, and it's the Amazon of China. They have Ant Financial. I like it a lot right here. Dan Nathan. Yeah, XRT, the S&P retail ETF. We're going to get retail earnings over the next couple of weeks. I suspect that the rise in the ETF incorporates any and all good news. That'd be a seller of the XRT here. Guy Adami. When Paul Sankey in Energy Speaks, the market listens. The refiners have had a big move. He upgraded Valero and a couple other names. VLO, Melms. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.